You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Thanks for uh, taking the time to join us today. We're talking about a subject that's near and dear to my heart. And um, unfortunately, it's not near and dear to many, uh, both institutional and individual investors' hearts. And we'll get at that. We're here to talk about the numbers. We're here to talk about um, something that's both recent and topical as far as Steve's concerned, but also it, it transcends his most recent reporting into a much longer conversation, which, which I hope we're going to have today. So Steve, welcome. Uh, and uh, let's talk about uh, your most recent experience. If you don't mind, let's give the Real Vision audience just a little primer on uh, what got you to look into uh, some of the big Chinese uh, account uh, firms' accounting policies and practices. And uh, what did you find? Well, Carl, first of all, thanks for having me on. It's really exciting to, to be here and to be talking to you. The reason that I did this report is very simple. I do, you know, the bulk of my business is training. I, I do a forensic accounting course for institutional investors. But the, many of those investors find material in the course that they find interesting or sometimes worrying. You know, some of the some of the clients, they see I've brought up an example in the course and it's something they own. So I started to do bespoke research for people, and I was asked by one of my good clients to do a forensic accounting report on Alibaba and its big four peers. So Baidu, JD.com, Tencent, Mituan. And um, the client came up with a long list of things. So there are like a dozen different points that they wanted covered. And I thought, well, this is actually straightforward, easy, not easy thing to do, but straightforward thing to do. Mm. I figured out what it would take, you know, how much time it would take and agreed a price for the client and set off. What the client didn't tell me was that they'd ask one of my competitors also to quote, and the competitor quoted $120,000, which was a lot more than I'd quoted. I quoted quite a lot of money. Anyway, I'm, I'm sort of halfway through this, and I, I have to call the client and say, look, I'm really sorry, but I've really, really underestimated how long this is going to take. And it's perhaps a bit stupid of me, but look, we can do a couple of things. I'm not going to just do a bad job because that wouldn't be the right thing. But if I do a proper job, I'm going to really be way, way over budget. How would you feel if I had sent you the report and then you let me sell it afterwards? And I said, sure, that's fine. And so that's how I've come, because I don't normally sell research. Right. And the findings of the report, well, no surprise that these five companies are not the cleanest companies when it comes to accounting. I They're, mean, come on, not the cleanest. What percentage of Alibaba's revenue and profits do you think are true and real? And what percentage do you think are completely fabricated? Well, I, I mean, I wouldn't like to say that 
they're completely making the numbers up. That would be that would be slightly on that would be slightly unfair and slightly uncharitable of me. Um, you know, there there's there's a couple of things here, Carl. I mean, part of the problem is that that counting rules themselves don't lend lend themselves to a proper evaluation of the earnings performance because you've got this daft step up provision where if a company owns an investment in a third party so they you know and alibaba's got lots and lots of investments if somebody else comes along and pays a higher price for that investment they are required by the accounting rules to revalue that asset in their balance sheet and book the difference to profit it is the converse true if a, if if a piece of that company is sold at a much lower valuation do they have to take the uh step down in valuation and, and subsequent earnings hit? Well, theoretically, that should be the case. And if the valuation, I and mean, their protection against doing that is they can say, if it's not a permanent diminution in value, they, mm-hmm. can, they can kind of fudge the, fudge the issue. And the, the funny thing with these five companies is that you see a lot of upward valuations, free valuations, you don't see many write-downs. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the criticisms that I came up with in the report, because if you think about it, if you're in, if you're a venture capitalist, even the most successful venture capitalists in Silicon Valley, a lot of the things they invest in go bust. Yeah, that's, that's part. That's why they do it. Right. They're doing these moonshots that they hope will be super successful. And the obvious corollary of that is that they'll have a very low hit rate. Not many of them will be super successful and they'll have a lot of failures. But in China, they don't have a huge number of write downs. And that you've got to ask yourself, well, why would that be? Let me rephrase my question, Steve. In in Alibaba's numbers, I've taken a look pretty deeply at Alibaba's numbers. So let me get this straight. If they have an investment in a private company or even a public company where they have a, where they have a, either control or not a controlling position, if the value of that private company moves up, do they record that as revenue to Alibaba? Do they run that straight through the income statement? It goes straight through the income statement. Oh, that's genius. I, I should know the number off the top of my head. I, I, I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but it's a you know, significant number for Alibaba. That I don't know that you can criticize them for that because after all, they're required to do that by the accounting rules. So I think you, you should really level that criticism at the accountants rather than the company. What, wait, which accountants? I've got a great problem with the the people that design the, the, the accounting standards today because they seem to be intent on producing a perfect theoretical result without having due regard to people like you and me who have to use the accounts at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a great example of that is a new accounting for leases. So... Um, it's IFRS 16 over here. I've forgotten what the, the, the number is in, in the US, but you're seeing exactly the same problem where they're bringing leases onto the balance sheet, but companies, two companies, which are otherwise pretty identical, are having massively different assets that they're, that they're creating. So, you know, two aircraft, two airlines with the same aircraft end up with a different number in their balance sheet. Well, that doesn't make any sense. And I think part of the problem in evaluating the Chinese companies' accounts is a problem that's not of their own making, but it's a problem of the standards. 
So there's kind of an, an amorphous line between the um, between the government per se and the and the quote private companies in China. We all know that back in 2013, the Obama administration got the SEC and the PCAOB to get together with the CSRC in China and it kind of gave them the most famous MOU that our that our that our accounting oversight board has ever given anyone, and it is. You know, if you think it's a matter of national security, you don't have to submit you or your companies to PCAOB covered audits. And therefore, China decided that every single bit of its data in every single bit of its companies, whether public or uh, whether SOE or, quote, privately held uh, that are public companies, um, don't have to submit themselves to audits. So uh, PCAOB covered audits. So when we look at these structures of whether you're looking at Tencent or Baidu or or, or Alibaba, or, or any of any of the sort, um, those those standards are quote China, number one. They're Chinese standards. They don't adhere to U.S. standards. And so, how do you think about Steve this difference between a U.S. or let's say Western uh, U.S. U.K. standard of accounting versus kind of China's version of its own accounting? Well, I feel more comfortable with the American version, if I put it like that. Really? No kidding. The problem with this, Kyle, I think, is, is that not only is the oversight um, not what we would expect and desire, and clearly there's no fundamental reason why a Chinese auditor, or indeed some of these companies have auditor, auditors that are based in Hong Kong, why they shouldn't be subject to some, some form of oversight. I mean, there's a real problem here, because even in the UK, where we've got the... The FRC oversees the, the supervision of audits. I mean, they've got a standard that says 90% of audits should be classified at A1 category. And the last time they reported, only 73% of audits achieved that standard. So even when you've got somebody overseeing you, the auditors haven't been effective at implementing the relevant and required quality control techniques, which is why we're seeing, particularly in the UK, so many companies going bust. But if you take away the oversight, then you've got to ask yourself, well, how good is the audit going to be? And the problem with these five Chinese companies is the audit fees are really, really cheap. Alibaba, it's, it's a bit bigger than Morgan Stanley. So you would think that Morgan Stanley is a pretty complicated company, but Alibaba's quite complicated as well. I mean, it's certainly going to be more complicated than than most companies. What would you think was the ratio of the Alibaba fee to the Morgan Stanley audit fee? Yeah, I would I would imagine uh, Alibaba would be a lot less because there's a lot less auditing going on. Yeah, well, that's right. And that's exactly what you would see because uh, the Morgan Stanley fee is probably something like four times the fee for Alibaba. Let's get to, I think, something even larger. Again, kind of back out of the current reporting, get, get back to, uh, you know, look at the, the financial crises in the U.S. We've had a, you know, we have a, a series of ebbs and flows of crises. And, you know, the biggest accounting frauds uh, in America really date back to the WorldCom and Enron you know, a fiasco and the blow up post 2000. So you had Enron in, in 01, you had WorldCom in 02. You had the famous uh, uh, contemporary of yours, Howard Schillett, write a book, Financial Shenanigans, uh, back in 2002 about, you know, 
how do you discern? How do you look through these financial statements to to come up with uh, whether or not what you're investing in is uh, is financially or structurally sound? And that became very important. It became a rallying cry. And it's actually what precipitated, in my view, finally precipitated the Dodd-Frank rules in the United States. So back then, people cared. Steve, do people actually read 8Ks, 10Ks, 10Qs? Do, are people actually paying attention to the numbers these days, whether you're an institutional or an individual investor, or do you even care? Well, I care, you care, but most people don't. I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary to me how few people read this out of accounts. Um, PwC, the accounting firm, did a survey of four or 500 analysts both buy side, sell side, some rating agency analysts, some credit analysts, equity analysts, and only two thirds of them said that they read the accounts. This is in a survey, right? So one right. in three admitted that they that they didn't bother looking. There right. was a, a, an academic study that I use in my forensic accounting course where they said that on the, the day of publication, the day after, the average S&P 500 firm has its accounts downloaded from Edgar only 28 times. Now, wow. Yeah, wow. okay, so there's 300,000 Bloomberg terminals in the world. So, you know, maybe people are downloading them from the Bloomberg terminal. No, that's, so you know you know how on Bloomberg, uh, when you pull an 8K or a 10Q from Bloomberg, it takes you to a site where there's a link and the link pulls it from the SEC site. So, so I actually think the number you're reading captures Bloomberg. There was an interview done by the Wall Street Journal, um, I think it was in 2015, they interviewed the GE CFO, and he said that their accounts had been downloaded something like 3,000 times, that was all. <laughs> and those people paid the price, didn't they? G GE was a hell of an accounting fraud. Have you ever looked at the GE accounts? They're, I mean, almost incomprehensible. I mean, I can understand why people bought, didn't bother downloading them because when you download them, you couldn't even understand them because they were really, really obscure. I mean, it's a simple fact that we're in a bull market and people like to listen to stories. They don't like to look at the numbers. And we know how this ends, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and it's funny because you mentioned Enron. There was, over the space of four years, there was Enron, um, there was then WorldCom, Global South, um, um, Global Crossing, QWest. Then the following year was Tyco, and I think it was 2003 was Health South. That's right. So in four years, you had over $400 billion of market cap evaporated. I don't think that is going to happen again because you've got all these additional controls and oversights in the United States. But that could happen here. And what you could see also in the United States is you could see a whole raft of companies having their earnings base reset. Yeah. Because they're all cheating. Back to something you just said, you know, people aren't downloading K's and Q's People that I know that have large investments in many of these companies have never read uh, a full quarterly report. And they do listen to the earnings calls and they listen to the questions the street analysts uh, ask. And, you know, I don't know if individual investors do that or not. It seems to me like there has been a there was an intense focus back in that time frame that you and I are talking about. Call it 0102, 03, 04. There was an intense focus on 
kind of getting back to the basics and trying to understand accounting because so many people had just lost so much money. And Steve, I would submit to you that until people lose a lot of money, no one's going to care. And, you know, we just had luck in coffee, right? We had Sino Forest. We've had many things happen. Can you imagine how much fraud is actually deeply embedded uh, in Chinese companies? There's no way of knowing, and we may never know. But as long as the central banks keep printing uh, as much money as they're printing, uh, it's going to be difficult uh, for people to, I think, lose money until these frauds are are uh, kind of brought to the forefront and in a in a uh, kind of uh, shock and awe. Uh, you know, uh, system. And and I think that's the only time people are going to pay attention is when they actually lose. Well, you need a catalyst, don't you? With every with every fraud, you need a catalyst. And the reason that you had that raft of frauds in that 2001 to four period was that you'd had that very, very long bull market throughout the 1990s. Right. And in bull markets, people get carried away. You know, they don't look at the downside. They don't worry about the numbers. They don't bother. Yeah. And it's only when you get an economic shock that the, that it all implodes. And what we've had this time round, obviously, is we've had a very unusual shock in the shape of COVID, but it's been masked by a massive injection of liquidity. Yeah. So you, you haven't had, the, the companies haven't had the problems. What you see often is the fraud gets exposed because the company can't make its numbers anymore well, because of an economic backdrop. That that's right. In some cases, if if it's yeah. a tech, if it's a tech company, they can keep they can keep doing it. There are certain industries where you're right, where the facts actually catch up with the story. You know, you and I spoke offline, and uh, one of our one of our friends, uh, David Einhorn, wrote the book after his experience with Allied Capital, fooling some of the people all the time. Uh, and I think it's uh, important to note that uh, something that David said to you is something that resonates with me and something that we talk about uh, with our friends uh, here today. And it's, you know, we're in a post. I, I actually think we're in a post numbers world, Steve. I'm not trying to minimize your profession. I think your profession <laughs> is incredibly important. Uh, I think it's incredibly important. The, the world doesn't think so at the moment. Right. Just because of the manner in which they operate. But we're, we're in a post truth world. We're in a world of great narratives and who tells the best narrative wins. And um, so we almost need a forensic narrative accountant and not necessarily a forensic numbers accountant. How, how do you feel about that? Well, I, I think that there's a, a place for that. I absolutely agree with you. I mean, you know, fortunately, there are enough smart people around who have got a long enough time horizon and are aware of this and they want to make sure that when the music stops, they're not caught they they're not caught holding the, the parcel that nobody wants. So, you know, I'm not worried from my own perspective is you know, there's a lot of people that are, that have a real interest in this, but I am worried from a, a wider societal um, basis because this is a, this, this is a massive problem. And uh, as I said before, I mean, I think part of the part of the issue is that the accountants haven't helped the cause by making everything so complicated. Mm -hmm. You know, when Alibaba produces its 2017 accounts, the 20F, I think, was 1,070 pages long. Well, you know, who's got time to read that? Right. Now, you know, it's good in a sense that you make the companies have to disclose things. 
but obviously the more complicated you make it, the more difficult it is for, for the lay person to access it. And what I think is wrong is that the accounts should be fairly simple to understand and fairly accessible for anyone. In a way, that's good news for me because I train people how to read accounts more effectively. Right. So, you know, there's an, you know, it's an opportunity for my business. But from the wider perspective, looking at the, the, the stock market, it's not good that these things, it's not good that my clients have to enlist my help in order to look at a few companies. Yeah. It's staffed. Well, it's, I, it, it actually gets back to the incentives of, uh, of, of all the participants. And when you look back to, let's just say the incentives of those, uh, back to David Einhorn's example on, on uh, Allied Capital, Allied Capital was a prolific uh, uh, equity and debt issuer uh, and, and deal company, right? They were constantly doing deals. They were a, a BDC. Uh, and so Wall Street would have loved to continue that business because they were a fee machine. So no one was really incentivized to tell you that the numbers were bad. No one was really incentivized to tell you uh, that their accounting was, was a problem. Uh, and that goes back to even uh, the late 1990s when there were when Bear Stearns was doing a whole bunch of um, specialty finance uh, securitizing of second liens where they were saying, oh, you know, based upon our experience, second liens only have a four or five percent default rates. And in the end, they had 30 percent default rates and these companies went broke. And Bear Stearns was, you know, banking all of them. It gets goes to the financial crisis where, you know, they wanted to keep the securitization machine running. And so no one cared about the numbers until the uh, financial reality, the economic reality caught up with the accounting. So do you think in this wave of, let's just say, uh, people turning a blind eye to reality, um, do you think it will catch up with them this time? Or do you think there's so much money in the system that it may not catch them? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. When you look at these five Chinese stocks and you look at the amount of money that's involved and the growth rate, it kind of has to stop. Right. <laughs> you know, the law of large numbers is what yeah, and, and the numbers are really, really big now. And, yeah. um, you know, the thing that I find astonishing, and I would never have guessed this before I started doing this work, but what I did was I added up the five companies for five years and I said, how much do you think they've invested in Chinese tech, in the Chinese tech ecosystem? Now, maybe it's not 100% gone to China. Maybe they bought businesses overseas. But they've all put huge amounts of money into startups or, you know, into tech companies that are a bit more developed. The numbers are staggering. So mm. over the five years, or it might, it might actually be six years, they've actually spent nearly $500 billion. That's five vision funds. Think about it. You've got a vision fund a year being injected into the Chinese tech economy. Well, one vision fund spread around the whole world has done quite a lot of damage. Can you imagine how inflated the values became? I mean, 
that it's a perfect point. It, but what's even more unimaginable is how did like when you look at Alibaba, how did Ant Financial come about? How did the ownership structure of Ant come about? It's not even written about. And we were talking about it being the largest IPO in the history of the world at 35 billion. When they formed Ant Financial, Jack Ma decided that he and the other 17 executives, Alibaba, how about this 52 percent? It's going to be ours. It's just going to be theirs. And the other call it 48%, well, that'll be Alibaba's. If you're an Alibaba shareholder, you should send a SEAL team to find Jack Ma and you should go pull him out of wherever he is and interrogate him. That is outright theft. Jack Ma should be in jail. So should all of the other 17 people that run Alibaba. And they stole hundreds of billions of dollars from the shareholders of Alibaba. And yet here we are lauding them as, as visionaries in China. And we are applauding this IPO and there's how much money was was bid for that IPO you know three trillion dollars worth of orders you can't even make this stuff up they stole half the company and yet the financial press and Wall Street just looks the other way how, how do you think about that Steve well I remember at the time there was quite a bit of commentary asking well how the hell can they be doing this and I mean you can't say they're not visionaries they were visionaries yeah <laughs> They certainly got the better end of the deal, right? I'm a visionary criminal. Those guys get rich. They've done uh, an amazing job of applying their own rules and their own um, procedures and own processes into stocks which are being traded in the United States. It's quite unusual. I don't know all the ins and outs of the financial transaction, but I remember the time it was bizarre, right? It was bizarre. Bizarre. It's not quite unusual. It was theft on a grand scale. It could have been the largest theft in the world's history. And yet, oh, it's very odd. Well, maybe we should pay more attention to this. But no, we're just going to give orders and we're going to applaud it. We're going to keep go buying Alibaba stock. I mean, who are these people? Who are the people that invest in Alibaba after all of this? Well, they're not the corporate governance experts. I mean, uh, <laughs> one um one very big institution, um, you know, a several hundred billion dollar in, institution in the United States, um, bought the report and asked if we could have a have a call. And so we had a, a video call on the call where they've got internal um, experts on accounting. And they were saying, well, how do we how do we persuade our analysts to look at this? And they you know, they recognize there's a problem because you've got internally within the institution, you've got some people who are saying, oh, wait a minute, we, this is uninvestable. And then you've got other people saying, well, hang on a second. I, I get paid on how well I perform against the index. And, you know, those two things are very difficult to reconcile in a large institution. And it's quite surprising to me how many big names are in this are in these stocks without having done, I, I'm convinced, without having done the work that you would need to do to satisfy yourself as to, to what you own. I mean, in the report, I don't even begin to cover the whole issue of VIEs because that, I mean, that's another incredibly complicated mess that you, you know, as a shareholder, you really got to ask yourself, well, what, am I, what do I own? Well, explain to our, our uh, viewership real quick what a what you mean in VIEs. This, this is something that, that you and I uh, traffic in daily, but it's something that uh, the broad audience might not even know any better. Well, 
VIE stands for Variable Interest Entity. And, you know, these businesses are slightly weird because in order to operate the way they operate in China, they need to be Chinese. But they're not taxed as if they're Chinese because they're actually held offshore. And the, there's a whole issue about if you're a U.S. citizen buying a, an ADR in the United States, what rights do you have over the assets that are located in China? That whole issue is very opaque and very misty, but people assume that they don't need to worry that their legal claim on the assets isn't is subject subject of some doubt because they figure that if that is ever brought into question, then the Chinese government won't be able to place any more stock in the United States. So it's all right. But if the Chinese government changed its mind, you've got to ask yourself, okay, what happens? And we saw this. I mean, the Ant Financial IPO, the Chinese government clearly wanted to send a message that we are in charge. Yeah, well, and the accounting there was suspect as well. I mean, if you looked at their filing for that IPO, they claimed to process three times China's GDP in transactions. They claim to process almost four times per person what Visa transact, uh, transact per person globally. I mean, Ant Financial was making up a certain amount of its books, uh, let's say by a multiple of, we don't know what the number is, but you, know, you get back to this VIE structure. These are how the substantial majority of Westerners own Chinese stocks through these VIE structures. And we at our firm kind of call it fantasy football. It, you, you don't own an asset. You definitely have no claim in a Chinese court to whatever assets are there uh, in China. You just own uh, a tracking stock of the Chinese asset based in, in Shenzhen or Shanghai. And so it's, it's interesting to me for people to even own these fantasy football structures themselves. I agree. I mean, you basically you're taking on trust. Yeah, but I, I mean, look at I look, can, look which government you're saying you're going to trust. I've got a certain I've got a certain amount of sympathy that on this issue. Leaving aside the question about these specific companies, this is a generality. If you decide that you're not going to invest in any of these things, you're creating a whole universe that you can't invest in, and that is a very difficult decision to make. For many, many funds. You say that's difficult because of FOMO for fear of missing out on, on higher returns and not being a part of that index because you're actually exercising your own individual judgment about trust? I think that you can easily criticize these people by saying they're taking an unacceptable risk. But the risk is very obvious. And as long as they're um, investors. So I've got a client who's a Chinese specialist and he owns some of these he owns some of these stocks and he's aware of the risk that he's taking by doing so and he explains to his investors that this is the risk that I'm that I'm taking it's a very lopsided risk obviously because if it goes wrong you've got 100% loss but it's a it's a very obvious risk the hidden risk the latent risk was the risk that more intrigues me, which is a risk that you're getting, leave aside the VIE thing, am I paying the right price for this for this business? And intellectually, that's a you know a different question. 
and and also a, a very interesting one. But I didn't cover the VIE structures at all. I mean, I, you know, I think that's a very binary thing. So you can easily make the decision, I'm never going to invest in that. But for many people, that's a much more difficult decision. You at Heyman Capital, you can invest in whatever you want. And you don't need to take that risk. But if you're running a fund that's being measured against a Chinese benchmark, by definition, you're actually being asked to take that risk. And it's very difficult to say no. Yeah, well, imagine being sued in a class action or being in a, in a court of law where uh, the opposition is saying, you are a fiduciary of my capital. And did you realize you were investing in companies that didn't submit themselves to real audits? Did you realize that the accounting uh, reviews showed that the companies were hypothetically making up large portions of their earnings? Did you realize that you owned a structure based in the Cayman Islands that had no real claim on the assets of the Chinese entity anyway? And given your losses, um, how do you reconcile being a true fiduciary knowing all of those things? And you're, Steve, the answer is, well, my colleagues were doing it and I was measured against that benchmark, so I kind of had to be there. Okay, that's not gonna, that's just not gonna work and you're gonna lose every time in court. So if you realize the risks you're taking, you need to be thinking about this for yourself. You need to say, as a educated and moral person, can I make this investment? And I, I come to the conclusion you can't. I don't think you should. I don't think U.S. fiduciaries or Western fiduciaries should be investing in these companies or in China in general until China becomes a responsible global actor that homogenizes its rules somewhat close to that of the rest of the West. And, and uh, until then, we should disengage. Now, that sounds hyperbolic, but I think I'm going to end up on the right side of, of uh, let's say, God in the long term. Well, I, I, in a way, I hope you're not right, because I think that would be a very dismal outcome for, for lots and lots of people. And I think the far better solution would be for the Chinese government to embrace a more open attitude and to say, you know what, we're doing pretty well in China, but we want to have access to these Western capital markets, and therefore we're going to adhere to, their, to your rules. Uh, or they should say, you know what, we want to have our own system. We've got plenty of money. So we'll just keep the Chinese companies in the Chinese casino. And the Chinese stock market, I mean, you know, it's, it's so ruled by the retail investor. It's so irrational that these companies can have access to very, very cheap capital. They don't need to come to New York, actually. They actually do, Steve. So if you look at, uh, anyway, if you, if you look at SWIFT and you understand that China still has a closed capital account. China desperately needs to attract dollars, euros, yen, and pounds. Without the West, China collapses uh, on the finance side. And so, you know, they've, they have successfully um, propagated this narrative and this propaganda that they can go it on their own. And I can tell you, if you just look at the current accounts and you look at the flow of Western capital, they can't. But that, that's neither here nor there. I, I think it's important for us to, to realize that I think in our conversation today, this most recent report that you've engaged in with the four large Chinese companies, you came away scratching your head. Is that correct? You come away thinking these risks that people are taking um, are much larger than they than they think. Absolutely. The scale of the risk, just but just by that one measure, where the cash is going. You know, at the end of the day, you know, 
we always get to the point where we go through a lot of work, but you always end up following the cash. Yeah. And just that simple thing, it is just not plausible that five vision funds can be invested successfully in the Chinese tech ecosystem without any losses. That is just not possible. So the fact that the losses haven't been booked yet doesn't mean to say they won't be booked. And that's the, at the end of the day, that's the, that's the issue, right? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Well, you just, just remember there were reports of both US and UK intelligence sources that said back uh, in the Tiananmen Square massacre that there were tens of thousands of students murdered by the Chinese government uh, military. And China has yet to record one loss of a student in Tiananmen Square. So I wouldn't hold your breath waiting on uh, Chinese Internet companies to record losses of investments they've made. I'll, I'll watch and, and wait patiently. But that, that, for sure that I mean, for sure that's coming. And it won't matter whether they actually report them over time. People will people will figure this out. Right. Yeah, I, uh, unfortunately, uh, my conclusion is people are going to figure it out only the hard way. It's not going to be hiring Steve Clapham uh, as they should. They should all be hiring you. They should all be uh, paying this, what I view as a pittance for your reports uh, in relation to how much money is invested right over there. Uh, but you know what, Steve? Uh, hu human history will tell you that that's just not going to happen. Uh, they're only going to be calling you wanting to read your reports and this book that you've recently written, which I'd love to hear a little bit more about. Once they realized that that the uh, the emperor literally had no clothes and that they were fabricating an enormous amount of these numbers. And um, that's when they're going to be calling you. That's when you're going to be doing better. Not not during these heady times of, of up and to the right. T tell us more about the book that you recently penned. All right. Well, thanks for asking. The book's called The Smart Money Method, How to Pick Stocks Like a Hedge Fund Pro. Very cheesy title designed to appeal to American investors. I have this um, really charming Scottish copywriter who writes my ads because you can imagine, Kyle, I'm you know a, a dull accounting analyst that likes to sit in a dark room looking at accounts. I'm not the best at B2C marketing. So Joseph Joseph produced the title and the book is the book's quite fun because what I wanted to do was I wanted to explain to the average lay investor how you processed um, the execution of a, of a trade and not a short term trade, but a proper long term trade. So a trade that might be over a three year period. So I just go through the methodology that I developed when I was at the hedge funds to find an idea. So the first thing is, where'd you find the idea? Then once you got the idea, what'd you do? The first thing I used to do was to check that it was going to be a good idea. So I would do an initial, well, you laugh, but we would spend four or five, six weeks looking at an individual stock idea. And you don't want to do that and then find it isn't a good idea at the end. You want to do that at the start. So I came up with a methodology for doing a first initial scan that would show up, was it worth pursuing? And then I go through 
how do you analyze the industry? How do you analyze the company? How do you assess the quality of the business? And we then go through the whole process of, okay, so you've now figured it's a good idea. Let's look at the accounts. And so I go through, not in, not in detail, but I go through how I go through the balance sheet, how I go through the cash flow statement, a few tips and tricks. And then I go through how do you write about how do you write up your idea? This is incredibly controversial. So when I do the training courses for private investors and I say to them, you need to write down why you're buying this stock. The idea of writing a note, a document is anathema to them. But what's quite funny is that um, the last course I did in person, I haven't done an in-person course for a little while, um, a couple of them emailed me to say, you know, we tried that idea of yours and it really works. <laughs> unless you've written down why you own the stock, unless you've written down what you think might go wrong, when when something does go wrong, and, you know, everybody, everybody makes mistakes in the stock market. That's the beauty of it is really, really difficult. So when it goes wrong, you need to have a plan. You need to know what to do. And what I distinguish between is the th stuff that goes wrong that's in the plan, and then you've got a strategy for dealing with it, and the stuff that goes wrong which isn't in the plan, which is when you need to panic and when you need to really do something. Mm -hmm. So I explain all of that, and I explain how to construct a portfolio, how to manage a portfolio, how to think about macroeconomics. And then I go through when do you sell? Because that, I think, is the most difficult thing, both for professional and private investors. When do you sell? The book's out in, on the 24th of November. And, you know, most people who have read it thought, thought it was quite fun and easy read. It's not. It's the easiest investment book you'll read. There are no formulae. There's no there's a few numbers in it. But it's it, it's a practical explanation of how to invest. Well, you, you mentioned, you know, not a short term trade, a long term trade yeah. here at our firm. Do, do you know do you know what the definition of, of a long term trade is? I have no idea. It's uh, a short term trade that's gone wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then I'm not sure whether to be offended or not by the, your definition of uh, your title being cheesy, quote, made to appeal to American investors. Was that a shot at America or what? What do you mean? Is that just uh, using? Uh, different nomenclature for different cultures. You know, I'm a big fan of the United States. I spent two summers uh, as a student. I spent the summer working in, in the States um, driving a good humor ice cream truck. And uh -huh. I, I fell in love with America from a very young age. And I spend as much time as I, as I can there. But I always am in awe of the American ability to market products. So that... You know, the email that arrives every single day. And, you know, this is a completely new thing for me. Trying, you know, online school, we started it really in February. Uh -huh. And so, I've, I mean, I've had a huge learning curve. It's been absolutely fascinating. But the one thing I can't get is this, how do you sell? How do you market? Mm -hmm. And, the, you know, the, the very aggressive American marketing techniques just are very difficult for a Scotsman like me to embrace. Yeah, <laughs> it's re I mean, it's really hard, but they're very they're effective, right? They work. They do. And so I would, uh, you know, I say this cheesy in admiration. <laughs> I wish that I could do a better job. And so, but we, I think we did a good job with the title. But the, the most important thing isn't the marketing. The most important thing is the content. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 
we we appreciate you taking the time today, Steve. Uh, the Real Vision audience uh, should look you up and should pay more attention to the things that you write about, especially uh, this report on on the on the big four Chinese internet stocks and and how they how they engage in their in their accounting trickery. And I think it's important for every investor, whether you're a millennial all the way up to uh, uh, you know a major portfolio manager or someone that's even retired in their 60s or 70s. Paying attention to the numbers is going to matter once again at some point in time. And um, I think the most important time to pay attention is now. Uh, so, Steve, this has been very timely. Thanks for your time. And uh, hopefully the Real Vision audience will will appreciate uh, the, your contribution. Th thanks very much and, and have a nice day. Carl, thank you so much for having me. It was great fun. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips and now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com